Hi there. This is Washington Post reporter Lillian Cunningham. Stay tuned after the show to hear about my newest podcast, Moonrise. It's the dark but true story of why we went to the moon. Available now. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Vanessa Williams from The Washington Post. Hey, it's Philip Rucker at The Washington Post. Do you have a minute? Hi, this is Dan Zach. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, July 22nd. Today, previewing Robert Mueller's congressional testimony, the underreported risks of home elevators, and a push to convert climate change skeptics. When was the last time that we heard from Robert Mueller about the Russia investigation? Well, we heard from Robert Mueller really only once in person throughout the entire investigation, and it was in May. Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. When he closed his investigation and gave about a 10-minute long public statement. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. Taking no questions, came to a microphone, let us see him, and declared his public desire to never speak about this again. We chose those words carefully, and the work speaks for itself. And the report is my testimony. I would not provide information beyond that which is already public in any appearance before Congress. But here we are. So what's going to be happening this week? This week, Bob Mueller is apparently unhappily going to be testifying on Capitol Hill. We're going to see him for a number of hours on Wednesday. He will testify publicly in front of both the House Intelligence Committee and the House Judiciary Committee in succession. He will also have a closed-door session, apparently, with the House Intelligence Committee, where they can get into matters that are classified. And what are we expecting members of Congress and particularly Democrats to ask him during these hearings? Well, Mueller has been very clear that he was not that anxious to testify and that he considers his report to be his testimony. He does not want to go beyond the report. So Democrats have sort of a choice to face. On the one hand, do they push him to reveal new facts that were not in the report, hoping that if they ask the exact right question in the exact right way, he will answer despite his stated desire not to do that? Or do they use this session to kind of put on display the contents of his report? There's been a lot of sense and polling that Americans widely have not read the report. The Democrats believe there are a lot of details in that report that are quite damning to the president. And so there's some sense that if you could just get someone to kind of talk aloud about the things that are actually in the report, it would have a really significant impact on public opinion. And so I, I expect we're going to see a bit of both of that. I think the House Intelligence Committee, which will focus more on what the Russians did during the election and moments where the Trump campaign appeared willing to accept their help, might try to push for some new details. I think the Judiciary Committee, which will be focused more on the president's actions in office, hope for a little bit more of a kind of dramatic reading, if you will, of the report. 
the report goes through these 10 moments that raise sort of possible concerns of obstruction of justice. Democrats have telegraphed that they really hope to focus on probably four, maybe five of those moments where the report suggests there is evidence that the elements of the obstruction crime were there. So this is going to be moments like when President Trump tries to get Don McGahn to fire Robert Mueller. And then a separate moment where when that news came out, Trump tried to get McGahn to deny that, even though it had actually happened. So I think we're going to hear some sort of real specifics about what Trump did in office that are laid out in the report, but people have maybe already forgotten about. But the problem with both of these strategies is that they're going to be dealing with Robert Mueller, who has established that he really doesn't like talking publicly about this, and that when he is forced to talk publicly, that he is very tight-lipped, very careful and cautious in what he says, and that I think a lot of people are expecting that many of his answers to questions will be, well, let me refer you to the report. Let me read from the report. This is what the report said. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. And I think there's a danger for Democrats, which is that if they push too hard, they could get a soundbite that is not helpful to them. They could get, you know, sort of a well-composed soundbites from Bob Mueller explaining that, you know, they did not choose to charge the president and they did not find a criminal conspiracy between the campaign and Russia. All these findings that are also in the report and that the president has been stressing, he could push back against them if they try to lead him too far down the road of saying, you know, if he weren't president. He would be charged with a crime because that's not what the report says. That's what some Democrats will tell you the report says, but it's not actually. What the report says is that the uh, special counsel's team made a decision to not come to a judgment as to whether or not the president committed a crime. And so that's what I would expect us to hear from Bob Mueller on Wednesday. And given that, what are we anticipating that House Republicans will be asking about and how are they going to be navigating this? Well, for one thing, I think they will try to get Mueller to, you know, reiterate what is in the report, which is that he did not charge a criminal conspiracy. He did not come to a judgment about whether the president committed obstruction of justice. But I also think that they're going to use this moment to ask a lot of questions about things that are not in the report related to the conduct of the investigation. So the famous Steele dossier, people will remember was this opposition research document put together by a former British spy on behalf of the Clinton campaign during the election. And Republicans feel very strongly that this dossier is the reason the Russia investigation began. There's some evidence that that's not quite right, but there were some pieces of the dossier that were sort of folded into the investigation at the beginning. And Republicans believe that the dossier was false, perhaps Russian disinformation, perhaps a dirty trick, and really want more information from Mueller about what role it did or didn't play in the investigation. And that if it were something that was compiled for the Clinton campaign, but then becomes the jumping off point for the Russia investigation that suggests that the Russia investigation was at its root politically motivated. Exactly. So I would expect they'd ask a lot of questions about things like the Steele dossier, about things like Peter Strzok, the FBI agent who was having an affair uh, with Lisa Page, a FBI official, and the text messages they exchanged. Partly what's interesting is those are topics actually that Mueller might engage on a bit more because they weren't considered sort of core to the investigation, so they didn't end up in the report. It's not like there was a, a decision made that this wasn't relevant to the president's conduct. Um, th there could be some interesting exchanges where Mueller sort of pushes back against the Republican narrative. And in some ways, it seems like Republicans are trying to gear up to use this hearing as a way to further the conclusion that at the end of the day, Robert Mueller said that there was no definitive collusion and therefore that exonerates the president. 
And we're seeing President Trump tweet about this now. Yeah, I mean, I think you can sort of see this as the Democrats hope that they will get enough out of this hearing to propel the process forward, to provide there to be justification for bringing witnesses in front of Congress and asking them more questions. So they want this to be kind of a, a, a stepping stone to more. Republicans hope to be able to use this to say, this is the end. What more do you want? He produced a 450-page report. We brought him before Congress. He answered all these questions. You know, what else is there? You know, we'll have to see where we stand at the end of Wednesday, how both sides did it, kind of drawing Mueller out and see. I mean, I, I think it's a it's a viable option for either side. Either side might win that argument of sort of, does it feel like there's more at the end of Wednesday or does it feel like we're at an ending point? Roz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Roz Helderman is a political investigative reporter for The Post. It was just a normal Wednesday afternoon. We went to make lunch and heard Fletcher crying. And so I went to see what was wrong. I thought he just couldn't reach a light switch. And at that point, I realized that he was shut inside of the elevator door. In February 2017, Nicole Hartz was with her son at his grandparents' home in Little Rock. It was a two-story house with a small elevator. At first, I wasn't super concerned. I thought it was kind of like he was stuck in a closet. And then the panic set in. My friend called 911 on her cell phone. And at that point, we couldn't get the door open, but we could get it open where we could see the accordion door in the elevator behind the door. And at that point... um, The elevator had rehomed to the second floor, and we didn't realize it, and it came down um, on Fletcher. Nicole heard screaming, and then the screaming stopped. It took two hours for first responders to get to Fletcher, and by the time police arrived... He had passed. At least eight children have been killed by home elevators in the last two decades— Fletcher was one of them. He was the most joyful boy in the world, always smiling, just full of life, and had his whole life in front of him. And and that accident, that split second, completely changed all of our lives. It's hard to understand how this even happens, how a kid gets trapped behind an elevator door at all. But these home elevators are not like normal elevators where the doors slide into the walls. Instead, there's a handle on the door that you pull, and it swings open. They open the first door, and they step into this space, and there's like, you know, five inches between the two doors. And they are, at that point, standing both on the landing sill and also on the sill of the elevator. And so when the elevator would move, if they can't get out of that space they are basically going to be raised up on the sill of the elevator and then they are going to crash into the shaft sill right above them. Alternately, what also can happen is that they are then lifted off the ground as the elevator raises, but they're not able to clear it, but then they'll fall down below the elevator and then get hit as it comes back down. That's Todd Frankel. I'm an enterprise reporter on the financial desk here at The Post. And Todd's been looking into why children are dying in residential elevators and what companies and federal agencies are doing about it. 
Because these elevators are actually pretty common, and not just in the homes of rich people. Their estimates are like half a million of these spread out throughout the U.S. And yeah, I mean, the rich people mostly have them, but they're also people install them because they have older parents. They want to help them get up and down floors. They're in townhomes. They're in beach houses. A lot of people, I've encountered them in a rental beach house that you know has this elevator because if you have four floors and not much space, it's easier to go up and down. And, and, you know, they cost fifteen to $20,000, but they become more and more popular because, you know, as houses have got more expensive, this cost doesn't seem so exorbitant. And people want to be able to age in their own home. And so these, these devices are becoming more popular. And so it doesn't happen very often, but when it does happen, it has these just incredibly tragic and horrific events tied to it. There's been, you know, fewer than a dozen deaths over the last 20 to 30 years. Experts say that's kind of astonishing and alarming, as well as the idea that not all accidents are actually caught by authorities or reported to authorities. So there's concern amongst the elevator experts, too, that this could be more widespread than believed. But I think what really stands out about these cases is there is a fix, and the industry has known about that fix and has, frankly, resisted doing anything about that. And so some of the parents whose children have been seriously injured or or who have died because they were crushed by elevators in these situations, they've been trying to fight to get these elevator manufacturers to try to install these fixes or, or standardize these fixes to make them safer. So the hearts is, you know, when they started digging into this and realizing that this was part of a larger problem that happened to other families, they then ran into another family, the Helvies, who were this couple, Mike and Brandy Helvey, down in outside of Atlanta, whose son, Jacob, was three when he was severely injured in 2010. You know, then they learned about other families. And so they then worked together to approach the Consumer Product Safety Commission to basically demand that they do something about this. And this is a basically a federal regulatory agency. Yeah, so the CPSC has authority and has in the past recalled residential elevators. You know, they don't address the commercial elevators, but when it's in a house, it's basically, it's a consumer product. And so... You know, if there was a problem with it, they would address that. And so what did the CPSC say about this and and say to all these families who were saying they don't want other kids to die in this way? So before the Hartzes, before Fletcher died in 2017, the Halvies had already gone to the CPSC and asked for help. Uh, They had filed a petition basically asking the agency to pass a rule to shrink the gap between the two doors, to make it smaller than it than it is. Because the idea is right now there's too much space in there that a kid can actually fit in there, but that if it were smaller, then you wouldn't be able to actually close a door on a kid and, and they wouldn't be able to get stuck in there. The space guards that we proposed to the Consumer Product Safety Commission when we met with them in April cost about $75 per door to retrofit the elevator, and it would completely eliminate any possibility of an accident like Fletcher's happening again. There's like this really interesting idea between the four-inch rule, which basically this idea that like uh, fences around pools can have spaces larger than four inches because kids can't fit into that space. And so the same idea with the elevators is that if they could shrink that space down to four inches or less, kids could not get in there. Interestingly, though, the, the requirements for the elevators, though, said they could be five inches at the time of the Hartz's elevator accident. So they were approaching the agency, basically asked for help. They asked the agency to do two things. One was to create a new rule requiring this space be shrunk, and then also to go back and require all the older elevators to have that problem addressed in there as well. It's the elevators that were installed before 2010 that are really a danger. But then that didn't happen. They didn't happen. 
But what about these elevator companies? If kids are dying in their elevators, wouldn't it make sense to them to go back and sort of like a like a car recall, right? Like inform people that there's this problem with the elevators. They either need to take extreme caution around them or that they should have them retrofit or that the, the company itself would pay to retrofit them to make them safer. Yes, yeah, so that's all come to a head like right now where the Hartzes and the Helvies, the two families have come together and asked the CPSC again to do something. And this time the CPSC is like, all right, we'll try. Basically what the elevator manufacturers are saying to the agency is that this is too difficult. Partly it's not their problem is what they claim is that you know, we sell these elevators, they say, but we don't know who the customers are. We, the dealers install them. They're the ones who have the relationship, and the dealers don't have good records. And so how are we ever going to find all the owners of these, of, these, of these elevators? Additionally, you know, this is not our responsibility to fix this. Um, you know, what do you want us to do? And so there's a, a stalemate at the moment. There's a home elevator trade group called the Accessibility Equipment Manufacturer Association, and they told me that the entrapment problem is complicated and not necessarily its responsibility to fix the trade group said it's also discussing the problem with the Consumer Product Safety Commission and discussing possible solutions. It's a $100, $200 fix to essentially stick something on the back of one of the doors just so it blocks out that space so a kid could not get trapped in there. It's really only a few hundred dollars to fix this? Yeah, no, it's not much, especially if you're considering, you know, it's a $15,000 installation. Yeah. We were blown away at all the information that was out there and how little had been done to correct the problem. Have some of the families of these kids who have been hurt or killed, have they considered taking legal action against some of these manufacturers? So all the families I spoke to who all sued and settled cases, basically won their cases against the manufacturers. And their actions now are not guided by any sort of legal thing, but they just want to stop this from happening to other families. For families like the Hartzes, how are they coping with this? We had another child, and which helped us tremendously. But I just want people to realize that this is so preventable. I, I think they are putting a lot of their energy into you know this battle to make elevators safer. You know, uh, Nicole Hart's the the mom of, of Fletcher. You know, she was a former attorney, and she told me you know this reminded her of like the worst cases she saw in court. You know, just, there was so much documentation, so much clear evidence that to her, you know, said, this need to be fixed. And so they've made it their mission now to fix this. And it's, you know, it's too late for them. They want to make sure this doesn't happen to another family. Todd, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Martine. Todd Frankel is an enterprise reporter for the Financial Desk at The Post. And now, one more thing from style reporter Dan Zak. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is an atmospheric scientist. She's a lead author on the National Climate Assessment, which came out last year. And she is also an evangelical Christian who lives in Lubbock, Texas, and is married to a Christian pastor. She has started this kind of extracurricular mission to talk to the public about climate change through her YouTube series, through her TED Talk, and through her appearances in churches and on campuses and panels around the country. I realized if we really, really want to connect with people, we have to go in with the attitude that they already have the values they need to care. 
I might not know what those are, but then it's on me to have the conversation with them and listen to them and figure out what they are. She long ago realized that in order to be an effective communicator on the subject, it was a matter of understanding the audience that she was talking to and connecting on those shared values. If she's talking to a church, she is putting the problem and the science and what to do about it in terms of what her faith inspires her to do. If she's talking to a rotary club, she's talking about care for the neighbor and public service and how that intertwines with a changing climate. If she's talking to a mid-sized oil and gas company in Texas, she begins by uh, expressing her gratitude for what fossil fuels have done for civilization. We are called to tend the garden and be good stewards of the gifts that God has given us. And most relevant to a changing climate, we're told to love others and care for those people who are less fortunate than us who are being most affected by a changing climate. Yes. So she gave a keynote speech at the Citizens Climate Lobby Conference in D.C. last month. And then that evening, she went to a dinner with a bunch of other evangelical and conservative climate activists. And while she was there mingling and I was mingling with her, this man from Texas came up to her and said, basically, I'm paraphrasing, but I just want you to know that you kind of converted me from denial to belief. And he is a man who worked in utilities, worked with fossil fuel companies, and became aware of her and what she did and trusted what she was saying because of who she was and where she lived. You know, she was an evangelical Christian living in Lubbock, Texas. And to him, that was personally more palatable. And so because there wasn't this automatic obstacle to engaging with the person, he started to listen. It's an interesting thing to think about, right? Because the rhetoric around climate change has been do you believe in it or not, as if it is something to be believed in. And that was kind of the thing that really got me thinking about this topic in general, faith and science. Why do we talk about climate change as if it's a belief system? And the way Dr. Hayhoe looks at it is she believes that humanity is a steward of God's creation, that God may have created our existence, but we are given responsibility to care for it going forward. My interpretation, just from observing and talking to her, is that she is someone who believes in God, but also believes in in free will, right? That we have the choice to do something about this problem or not. Dan Zak is a reporter for The Washington Post. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The story you probably know about the moon landing starts with Sputnik and with a Cold War space race. Or it starts with President Kennedy's famous speech calling for us to go to the moon not because it's easy, 
but because it's hard. That tale ends eight years later with an American flag waving on the lunar surface. But the real story is much deeper, wilder, and more revealing. Hi, this is Lillian Cunningham, host of the Washington Post's presidential and constitutional podcasts. Come with me on my next podcast journey, Moonrise. Moonrise reexamines the story you thought you knew about why we went to the moon. I dig into newly declassified documents and presidential records, closed-door political deals, the Cold War nuclear arms race, even the history of science fiction, to tell a new story about space. It's a story that's darker, but also truer than the story you've probably heard before. And it has a lot to tell us about ourselves as Americans and as humans. Subscribe now on your favorite podcast app or at WashingtonPost.com slash Moonrise.